Thank you for listening to the Patrick Ely podcast. Subscribe on Spotify and Apple. Visit a healthyshelf.com for California farm and CSA reviews. Making a purchase of supplements through the link provided will help support our efforts. You can find more free content at the Patrick Ely channel on YouTube. Kyle McDougall's website is irontreelife.com. The information contained in this podcast is not intended as and shall not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information contained in this podcast is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Nothing available on or through this podcast should be understood as a recommendation that you should not consult with a medical or health professional to address your particular information. I've felt for a long time, and I've really only started articulating it in the last six months or so, but I felt for a long time that this American lifestyle, this culture is a battle zone. Like your body, your biology is under attack every single day by incentive, <laughs> by, you know, we touched on it a little bit, one of our previous episodes by these economically incentivized behemoths that are trying to fill your body full of things that will cause you to buy more, but also cause you to live less. I think that a businessman who looks at his competition as people trying to kill him could potentially get a lot out of content that we produce for people and identify with the fact that we're talking about being harder to kill. Mm -hmm. And that that could not only be a metaphor that athletes are connected to, but if you've been hearing business people talk about what they do as a war zone, and we know that business people are looking to get a little more well or balanced, at least a certain population of them, as far as a target market, they might enjoy uh, us leading them to having that perspective of you, know, you can be better in your in your business war if you get a little more sleep, right? If you also, if you important. oh, go ahead. No, I'm good. Well, it's also just, um, it is an important concept because when you are harder to kill, it doesn't necessitate winning and dominating, right? And so much of our culture emphasizes how winning and dominating is the only way. And it's, and it's not. I mean, that's a jujitsu mentality, really. Part of jujitsu is um, fighting not to lose, right? Fighting to survive, defense first, right? And being harder to kill, I think it. a lot of us have taken hits in our lives, taken losses, and being harder to kill and being able to get back on that horse, I think resonates with more people than being an undefeated champion of life. I mean, I've been struck down so many times, but I'm still here. And I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to.
And I think there's there should be great pride and feelings of accomplishment around being harder to kill. I'm just harder to kill than I was before. That's 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 a good goal. When I was in my teens, I had a period of life where it was a pretty consistent series of unfortunate events. And it really got me from all angles. I mean, you know all this, but it got me from all angles. It got me from like the uh, bad family structure. It got me from the physical violence aspect. It got me from the being put on, on bad psychoactive prescription medications. It got me uh, from the, um, from other aspects of trauma and violence. Got me from physical injuries. A bunch of, of events happened all at once. It felt like because every time I was coming out of one, the, the next one seemed to happen. And around the time, I guess around when I started being allowed to drink, things quieted down for long enough that I, I could kind of look around me. And mm -hmm. I was at my first college. And pretty much all that was left of me was I wasn't dead. I didn't have like anything to show for it or offer other than, well, his heart is beating. And I think whether I knew it or not, I posed a question, knew it consciously or not, I posed a question to myself. Do I want to give up? Do I have this opportunity to realize that I don't want to do this anymore? And surely something else is coming in this wave of obstacles. And I knew what it felt like to give up because I had given up in classes and arguments and different kinds of situations, but I also had uh, been in a physical altercation where I was fighting a group of people and I was being beaten so badly I couldn't use my body anymore. And I was still conscious and I remember giving up. Um, it started with trying to throw punches back at people and realizing that my hands weren't, weren't solid anymore. So I was just hitting people with, with mush. And then it became trying to fling my arms or put them in front to like block my head and body. And then all of a sudden I couldn't get my arm to move anymore. And when I made the decision, I was either make, going back and forth between accepting pain in different parts of my body and sending thoughts 
to that part of my body to do something about it, which wasn't going well for me, mm-hmm. or to uh, stop reacting to that pain and try to let it just go and try to die. And so I, I knew I was familiar with making like a really serious decision about not continuing. And the, the, the universe decided that those guys were going to leave me before they had finished me off. And if it hadn't been for uh, a couple of nice girls um, driving a Suburban into them and picking me up off of the street, they probably wouldn't have changed their mind, but they did. And so they're almost old enough to drink when the mental and physical obstacles had taken a break. They weren't gone. But whether I knew it or not, I'm pretty sure I was asking myself, do I want to accept whether whatever obstacle is going to come next? Because I have no doubt that another obstacle will show up. And do I want to do whatever it takes to keep moving and to keep believing in myself? Or do I not have what it takes anymore? And I already felt bad enough about myself that it didn't that I could kind of override the, oh, you're a wimp, be tougher. Like I, I, I didn't have enough self-esteem for really that kind of thought. It was more of a pragmatic. And I decided that I did not want to give up. And it was in that period of time where I became infatuated with the ways that I could make myself ready for whatever came next. And because I'd been beaten up and because I'd been shot at and because I'd failed tests and because I'd been been rejected from programs and because I'd been kicked off teams or not made them and because I had had a bunch of different forms of events that might come my way that were not what I wanted. And also many of no fault of my own, I just understood that it was a aspect of life for some folks. Mm -hmm. I knew that I can't just study this one thing and it's gonna be okay. I knew that I can't just try and get a good grade in this class that I've got and I've got three of these classes a day, five days a week, and then the rest of the time I can do whatever I want. Uh, I I started training right about then. And I started. You see that as like the the beginning of your conscious wellness journey? I had tried to start a little while before that. Mm-hmm. but a freight train is hard to stop. So when I had originally started trying to like um, 
one of the first things I did was I realized that I was not probably being diagnosed uh, and prescribed an antidepressant for accurate reasons uh, was I started seeking out new opinions in the town where I was living because I'd changed I'd, I'd gone out of town to go to college and tried to kind of unravel that and really started learning a lot about uh, nutrition and supplements like fish oil and also trying to find proper medications or when there wasn't one that should have been there. And during that time, I, I had some, I had uh, some really violent events, wrong place at the wrong time. I got hit by a bus, a school bus, while I was trying to go get a banana after lifting weights at the school gym, which screwed up my body for quite a while. Um, I had a bunch of random events, did not have healthy support from my family structure in terms of any sort of health. And so I kept having these things come up and it was like, oh, if I could just eat right, maybe I could do my homework better. But then I was also trying to walk again and shit like that. Yeah. So at some point though, all those events like stopped for a number of months, the bad things. Mm -hmm. And I, I was just able to actually do the little things that I knew I, I could or should do to get better and to get safer. So I just, I got to do a little bit of them and it began opening that window of my mind to go into a better place and manifesting that for myself in my own life. And from the out, from the onset, I knew that part of that was what you put into your body. I was, at the time, I was uh, fat and heavily medicated, um, partially of my own accord. And I went from 180 some pounds down to 134 pounds, shedding every ounce of fat that I could figure out how to get off of my body because I wanted to build it up with things that would serve me and that extra weight didn't serve me, especially when I started trying to be physically competitive and I saw what other guys were able to do and how far, far off I was from that. Mm -hmm. And I saw successful people quite often being entrepreneurs, not always, but people who, would, who were able to take care of themselves and then pursue activities that they, they wanted to pursue. And they usually had done something good with their job or their career. And I wanted to understand what that could be or how I could do that because I didn't feel any security from where I came from. And I, I wanted to understand things that I was deficient in. And as a, as a Gen Z or uh, whatever, whatever generation I am, I spent way more time in front of AOL Instant Messenger than I spent wrenching on cars and, and learning how to be more manual with life. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that was a big part of it. And I didn't even know where to start with that because I just felt so ill-equipped to, to subsist on my own in any way. And I started growing and I made a lot of mistakes along the way. Um, but if nothing else, I committed, right? I, 
I got a, I became a doctor of chiropractic for the wrong reasons, but at the heart of it, I was trying to understand what, what natural health was and how to provide that. And mm -hmm. um, so that's what had led me there. After about 10 years of that trip of trying to be prepared for anything and everything, and I didn't really start into martial arts, I think, until about halfway into that trip. And part of it was insecurity, and part of it was too much information. I was coming from a place where I really wanted to know what worked in life. I, had, I felt like I was reborn around 21, and not in a good way, but like I didn't know anything. And there was just so much out there to learn that it seemed like some karate stuff was not real fighting. And the only real, only thing that I wanted to know was if somebody in, a, in an alley comes up to me with a knife, what I got to do if I can't run away. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really, uh, I wasn't too concerned with how flexible I could get in my, my groin. It just was not, I didn't have any time for that. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I found my way to, uh, was a little bit of boxing, but then the first thing that stuck was jujitsu. And I became convinced of that by the UFC and then fighting someone who knew how to grapple. And they put a, a quick rib breaking on me, quicker than I thought could really happen. And so I had to, I didn't have to, but I decided that was the thing that I was gonna figure out and I was gonna get with these I was going to I was going to meet guys that fought but were doing jujitsu and I was going to train with them and I was going to do whatever they said and once I got there if I didn't die or if they didn't throw me out I was going to find out what they did right and then I'll go from there so I don't care I don't need to think boxing's good or taekwondo's good. I'm going to walk in this place and I'm going to go to, you know, the baddest people I can find. And I'm going to make sure that I know them and they know me. So I'm not getting misinformation. And then I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. And not long after moving from Florida to Chicago, which was a couple of years into being in the martial arts very regularly, very consistently, the universe brought me to you. And you were at my jujitsu school, but you were a real mixed martial artist. And I would see you in like jujitsu drills and you would just beat everybody that was there training. And then you would go, spar kickboxing and I would see you just be like hey, hey like talking to everybody all nice and then you would just rip these combinations that that would hurt somebody and so when I met you I was like this is a this is one of the people that I'm, that I'm looking for. 
I don't, I don't know what he's about. I don't really care. Um, that's that my training for being harder to kill did not involve people's uh, moral agenda. That, that was a mistake I made early on. If I cared how somebody was to their kids, I wasn't going to be meeting many of the best at a lot of things. Mm -hmm. A lot of the best professionally are the worst at home. And so I had let go of that. And I would keep my distance from people as I got to know them until I knew them to be good people. But I, I, I knew without knowing what kind of guy you were, okay, I got to like, I got to train well enough to get to be in his groups while we're, you know, I just got to get to incrementally get closer to this guy. And I had no idea that you were on your same but different journey in self-development to um, become as resilient as you possibly could as a man. And it just so happened that I had things that you wanted. Mm -hmm. And we were able to come into our lives in a way that we could reciprocate with each other. And since then, you've become one of my partners in this journey that I'm on with several people where we are really trying to get some high level understandings of some very real aspects of life. Mm -hmm. Not so much chasing the, the mystery of the meaning of life, but more about understanding what you need to be your best and to contribute when it really matters to yourself and your community. Wow, Patrick, you know, you just never truly appreciate how you appear to others, how you come across, what your impression on other people is. My memories of training were at the gym where I met you. It was mostly just getting my ass kicked. And truthfully, that is my memory of most of my martial arts journey. I just remember losing so many hundreds and hundreds of times. But I have become harder to kill in the process. And it's harder to beat me than it was 20 years ago, for sure. You said something a little bit earlier about, about giving up. And I learned earlier in my, you know, in my early 20s that um, quitting and giving up is a place that the vast majority there may be outliers that you can't bring them to that place that those people may exist, but they are so rare 
And for most of us mortals, life or just a specific situation can definitely bring us to a place where we'll quit and we'll give up or we'll find that weakness, that, that weak part of us that just wants to complain and just wants the suffering to be over and doesn't care why we're suffering to begin with, doesn't care about the higher value. I remember before mixed martial arts fights, you know, I'd be in front of a crowd of a couple hundred people, maybe a thousand people on, on a good night. And I remember, you know, as if that wasn't enough pressure and I would put more pressure on myself. And I attribute this now in retrospect, this is cultural programming. Absolutely. This just comes from too many hero movies growing up, but I would put more pressure on myself and say that, you know, if I don't win this fight, the world's going to end. Um, even into my thirties as a father, I remember one of my last competitive jujitsu bouts was supposedly in front of 20,000 online viewers. And I told my coach, tell me before the match that if I didn't win, this man, who was actually a very nice man, by the way, but this man that I was going to face was going to kill my family, my kids. I told my coach to tell me that right before I got on stage because I thought that there was this intangible quality to willpower that would help you overcome any physical duress, any anguish, and you would prevail. And I remember being in a, a, a fitness test in the fifth grade and we were doing pull-ups. And I, I, and we, we did the pull-up thing and then like we had like a couple weeks and then we were gonna do it again. And in the interim, I trained, I got a pull-up bar my dad set up a pull-up bar in the basement and I would go down there and I'd work on it every day. And then at some point, I think the work just got either boring or I got distracted or it got too hard and I stopped doing the work. And I said, it's okay because this time when I get up on that pull-up bar, I'm just not gonna let go. I don't even need to prepare that much anymore. I'm just not gonna let go. And then I'll be able to bust out more pull-ups. But the truth is, every time I've ever tried to rely on that, you know, ephemeral spirit of, of indomitable, indomitable will, I have found my performance to be lacking. I didn't do any more pull-ups that day. That, that really nice man that I had my coach tell me was going to kill my family, well, he won that match because I got tired and I did a decent job not giving up in most of my MMA fights, but I had an MMA fight that I lost mentally and emotionally before I even stepped into the ring. And truthfully, like my physical performance was fantastic, but it didn't matter because mentally I was not there when I lost that match. And I just bring that up because I don't see that aspect of humanity where we get to a place where we have to relent, we have to submit, we have to give up. 
I don't see that as a weakness. I mean, maybe by definition, you know, when you get to that point, you are weak, but it is an undeniable fact of reality that that exists in the vast majority of people, that space. And now, as a bit of an older man than I was before, still young at heart, I find that space where I get to in my training where I want to give up, I find it to be so valuable to go there because I'm, I'm familiar with it now. And to pretend that it doesn't exist or to try and make it disappear is, it doesn't work. We can't do that. The only way to know this demon and to get him to work for us is to become acquainted with him and to get to know that part of yourself. They have this incredible saying in yoga that it's not about self-improvement. It's about self-acceptance. I would love to just be the kind of athlete that never, ever gave up, the kind of father that never, ever lost his patience, the kind of business owner that like always had like a clearly thought out plan. But that's not life. You know, we must get to know our, our weaknesses and come to acceptance with them in order to be fully human. That was one thing I wanted to say. I know when you felt like you were giving up in that first fight where you're getting assaulted by multiple opponents, many men have gone to that space under far less duress, including myself. I actually got to a similar, I got to a, I don't want to sound like I'm diminishing your performance or diminish, sorry, diminishing your experience. My, it may come on. My performance was diminished. <laughs> Regardless of what you say. I, I'm not trying to, to put what you, you went through. You can't hurt me. I, I'm not trying to minimize it, but I feel like I kind of got to that place in my squat workout yesterday because I wanted to, you know, I was doing 240 squats and I, you know, I wanted to give up at 200. There were sets of six. You got 40? Right? No, oh, I got, I did them all. Of course I did them all. But okay. they were sets of 60 squats and definitely, you know, you want to give up at about 30. 30 is about where I want to stop. And I started like whining inside the little voice, like whining and complaining. But that voice exists for a reason. Our, I mean, our limits are there. It's so inspiring, you know, the people that have just produced extraordinary physical feats in their lives again and again and again. They talk about that element of willpower and it's really important. And, and, and we got to try and develop our willpower also. But we can never do that by negating the fact that everybody has to quit at some point. That brings us to the topic of overtraining and active recovery. I love this topic. Because life and the human body and its adaption and learning are all about balance. Mm -hmm. You got to balance inputs with reinforcement. 
you've got to balance the reinforcement with the consistency of that cycle. And regardless of if you're new to a pursuit or you've been at it for a decade, one of the most common pitfalls that people make is they overtrain, which usually means that they're neglecting something they should be training, whether that's their ability to sleep. Mm -hmm. So many people don't sleep enough and then that diminishes their capacity to recover. And then they try to train like someone who does sleep enough. And eventually that ends in a lot of, a lot of injuries or in something more conscious like uh, creating muscle imbalances or creating time imbalances where you lose, you lose track of supporting yourself and you end up screwing up your, your career over a hobby or you end up screwing up something that is a hobby that could have become a could become a career you loved because you overtrained in a work pursuit mm -hmm. trying to beat everybody else or trying to please someone else and active recovery is a really important coping mechanism for balancing that and it's also an important coping mechanism for people dealing with being wimps. And it's all they can do to go to an exercise class a few times a week. And then they think, I've earned this or that, or I've done enough. And really they haven't, especially if we're talking about rehabilitating a, a broken part of the body. Mm -hmm. And quite often active recovery can kind of kill multiple birds with one stone. You can help yourself prepare for, for the objective, but you can also accomplish fixing some sort of weak point in doing so. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you can explain a little bit what active recovery is, what that term, what that term means. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, if we want to talk about science, a scientific perspective, when you think about active recovery, one of the markers used to be, uh, and, and it's usually it usually comes in the form of some kind of cardiovascular steady state exercise. So think running, cycling, or swimming. Now, what researchers and have done with athletes in the past is they'll have them do some kind of performance, say a hundred meter sprint. And then they'll test that performance again, a uh, quantity of time later, maybe 24 hours, maybe an hour. And then in between those two performances, you'll have them do some kind of active recovery. And it used to be that the metric they were looking at were lactate levels in the blood. So, when you're using because your they thought that that was a marker of muscles getting tired? Because the amount of lactate, yes, essentially, yeah, essentially, the amount of yeah. lactate in the blood, they connected that with um, the higher the 
amount of lactate, lactate in the blood, the, the, less, the less recovered the muscle was. And the reason Got they it. thought that initially was because lactate is produced by the conversion of glycogen into ATP, into fuel. Um, yes. That's my understanding. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Is it glycogen? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, Byproduct. However, along with yes, nitric oxide. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is a vasodilator, right? Uh, it's marketed as a vasodilator, but it's actually a byproduct of vasodilation. Oh, go figure. Yeah, it's and just bullshit. That whole, uh, blood vessel, that whole blood vessel response is, well, that's something we're going to have to touch on in this conversation because that, that is relevant for sure. Um, yes. Well, it turns out that the amount of lactate in your blood isn't really a good indication of how well your muscles are recovered because what they found, what at least in the, the research that I've looked at is they found that you can have higher levels of lactate in your blood and still have a better performance on that second um, time trial, we'll say. The second, um, second hundred meter sprint. Yeah, the second one, you can have a lot of lactate and still perform well. And, and so it seems that the amount of lactate in your blood is not correlated with how well recovered you are. But it, it made sense in theory. So what they would do for an active recovery modality is they would have them do some kind of steady state cardio at what they call the lactate threshold. So easiest way to think about it is about 85% of your maximum heart rate. It's about where the lactate threshold is. And in my experience, at that 85% of your maximum heart rate level, that's where things start to get kind of difficult. So if you're running and you are between say 65 and 85% of your lactate, or sorry, of your maximum heart rate, you're gonna find that you can sustain that pace for a long time aerobically. Um, you know, if your legs aren't conditioned for running, then you may not be able to maintain that for very long. But before your legs give out, you're going to end up above that 85% of your maximum heart rate zone. So as long as you're in 85% in that range, your legs probably aren't going to give out. Well, I would say probably not. Yeah, you're probably going to be able to produce okay. enough fuel aerobically. At least that's how I understand it. So yeah, you're probably you're, like if you're if you have to run a marathon and you want to do it and not feel the worst possible, then you're probably going to stay below that 85% of your maximum heart rate. The problem is you're not going to be able to run that marathon very fast. Cool. Active recovery. Got it. Uh, the the methods that I've looked at as far as um, aerobic methods, they usually will put people right at that lactate threshold right at that 85% point, and they'll have them produce that amount of work output for 20 to 60 minutes, and they find that that um, does help lower your blood lactate levels. And this modality is still used widely by athletes as a form of active recovery. It does 
seem to reduce subjective measures of soreness and fatigue. Um, and it does not uh, seem to decrease your performance. So active recovery is a, essentially a steady state cardiovascular activity that challenges your lactate removal system um, and it helps lower your blood lactate levels. Some of my teammates, MMA fighters swear by it. Mm -hmm. What do they say? Do they say that it helps them go harder again faster? Yes. Mm -hmm. They say that like we might have a really hard, hard training session one night, extra hard rounds or extra long. And they say after a day like that, especially if they wake up feeling like they got hit by a truck, that they've got to go for a little run mm -hmm. or for a little swim. And, I'm and then if they don't, they just, they'll just stay unrecovered. Yeah. So I'm curious, do they, um, where do you think they're at with that lactate threshold? Like, do you think that they are, when they go for their swim or run, what are we talking, 20 minutes or an hour? An hour. Okay. Do you think they are? These guys are crazy athletes, though. Yeah, you train at one of the most hardcore MMA gyms in the world, and they are known throughout the mixed martial arts community for having incredible cardiovascular conditioning. Cardio. Yeah. So, uh, relatively speaking, it's probably a half an hour. But the guys I'm talking about specifically, they'll they do they do like six miles for a recovery run. Where I think of a recovery run is like a five k. Yeah, maybe a little less. Well, for the for the everyday person, active recovery um, probably more like thirty minutes of effort. But for these okay. high level elite athletes, um, more like an hour. This I'm okay, actually, so this let me ask question, you. not me. I'm not saying that as a statement. I'm asking you. Do you think for everyday folks that thirty minutes of active recovery is appropriate, or do you think that they should also push it for that hour? I think they should establish 30 minutes first. And within that paradigm, I don't think that they, that uh, a regular individual should be afraid of 30 minutes of exercising every day. Mm -hmm. Like there's this thought of, I have to have a rest day. So you're doing CrossFit and you got three days in that week or whatever your split is. And, and your programming said you have to have a rest day so the family wants to go on a bike ride and you need to stay home and eat paleo. Mm -hmm. I think that as a mental exercise, you should also be like, I'm going to go for this bike ride. Mm -hmm. Not even worry, like teach yourself to not even worry about the recovery aspect. But I think that for most people, um, 30 minutes is a good amount of time, especially if you're trying to start incorporating it. And you also want to be, most people want to be careful with nagging injuries, shit like that. Mm -hmm. And jumping into cross training for longer durations can, can maybe um, accelerate like a little tendon or ligament issue that might get you sidelined first. Right. 
Yeah. When I advise my clients to incorporate what I think of as um, aerobic base training, I will advise to use, if they're in a gym, use multiple different pieces of equipment, not in the same session, but mix it up. You know, you get on the elliptical one right. day, you get on the treadmill one day, you get on the bike another day. If you can get in the water and swim another day. Um, and actually before my last jujitsu competition, um, in the before times, uh, the last, I think it was like 10 days or the last week beforehand, I would make sure I got like that steady state cardio in the 64 times he means pre pandemic. Yeah. 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 He didn't lose his legs or anything. No, no. In the before, <laughs> before the coronavirus changed the way that I'm living, I, um, I spent, it was 30 to 40 minutes. And actually I had a one day earlier in the taper where I did 60 minutes of just aerobic base training. And that's all I did. I would just get on the bike or elliptical or whatever it was. I would get pretty sweaty, but it wasn't super challenging for me because it was in that 65 or yeah, 65 to 85% of my maximum heart rate, which again, it, it those kind of workouts, they feel nice. You, you're not usually spent afterward. Um, but I'm curious with your high level teammates, these elite level athletes, do you think they're staying below that 85% threshold? Or do you think that they are training above 85% of their maximum heart rate when they're doing active recovery? I think most of their training is below that 85%. Most I think that they're- They're drilling and their technical yeah. development, okay. Um, I think that they are, they have elite genetics in the cardiovascular department. Mm -hmm. They have years of training in all of, all of these disciplines under their belt. And I think that what the rest of the world can't imagine is a calm activity for them. I think they're purposely keeping everything under control all the time and, and really, and in doing that, they're, they're, they've developed an ability to stay like parasympathetic dominant mm. in, in controlling a lot of their, um, their underlying physiological processes. And they're kind of switching on when to turn everything up. Mm -hmm. Now, I might be I might be making it sound like they're spending less time at that level than they than they are but my point is is that they aren't trying to make they know that in order to make every training session like their last they can't train like it's their last like if you're just training and drilling and learning in a sympathetic state where you're exhausted all the time. You're not very open to new skill and new technique and the nuances of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so how much does that actually serve you um, outside of knowing that you can handle that speed or handle that intensity? You need to have the appropriate if that makes sense oh it does i mean for me i'm right there you need to have the appropriate amount of exposure to the higher intensities 
And in my experience, it's usually far less exposure to those higher intensities is more beneficial. Yeah, th this isn't really like, go ahead. Another, another, two other little pieces of that is one of it is, in my opinion, by necessity, like at an extremely elite level of, of martial arts, each one of those people is like a small business and you can't have a bunch of fortune 500 CEOs all working for the same company. Mm -hmm. Like they need to have their own operations. And because of that, you have employees, right? Within your own, your own corporation. And a lot of those employees just simply don't possess the same qualifications you do, but it doesn't mean that you don't work with them. Mm -hmm. So quite often, like they might need to make certain rounds that they're doing against certain training partners about a specific skill or a specific technique or a specific aspect of their, their cardiovascular conditioning versus trying to beat them. Mm -hmm. Like I've been in a lot of rounds with some people who will remain, remain nameless. And the round was spent with me just trying to find a hole and them, them just giving me holes that were really traps for me to just walk into and just like, I, I was never giving them a reason to have to go to have to go to that level. And also the other piece is that, but that's not, of course, they're getting plenty of rounds with guys that give them plenty of trouble. But another piece of that is, you know, say you're going to do a five round MMA fight. Mm -hmm. That is not an easy thing to do. That is not the same thing as a three round MMA fight either. And there's a different psychology and a different conditioning that has to go into someone preparing for championship rounds. And one of the guys I train, train with, he like, he does a lot of championship round fights or has in his career. He's not usually training for a three round fight. And you've got to learn how to be able to deal with situations without completely gassing yourself out. Mm, yeah. Not relying and on so your, part of that might, your... yeah, yeah. Part of that might be in learning to stick to the game plan, right? Like if you lay out a training protocol for the week to get you from point A to point B, and that involves some long road bike rides and some swims and some boxing rounds and MMA rounds and some runs, then what have you really accomplished if you blow yourself out on Tuesday? Mm -hmm. Like, because you, you dominated every single round to the best of your ability, instead of working out of difficult positions or whatever, it, did that really trump getting a full week of training? Did it really trump the cardiovascular benefits of getting yourself into that condition to, to cross train? for a whole week, you know, for six weeks in a row or something like that. So sometimes I think once you cross over to a certain threshold, you're not always training for technique, you're training for, for the prize fight, if we're talking MMA. And that 
that involves giving 100% on that day. And at no point can you get lost in the moment, right? Like you, you might be in a, a very tough round training in a cage, but you have to remember that this is the piece of ending up there. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that comes into play sometimes at an elite level where guys are doing active recovery because that they they know that all of those pieces add up to very peak conditioning come fight day right and mm-hmm. and not to go off on another tangent because i we've got our subject for today but you know speaking of mma you guys take damage mm-hmm. hard training sessions do not leave you without being in pain and you're trying to show up to the prize fight where they pay you the money in as good of total condition as you can. So sometimes that means tapering and laying off some of the physically destructive training. Once you've, once you've gotten your base of where you want to be from a technique standpoint and from a strength standpoint, and then just enhancing and augmenting that cardiovascular, that aerobic ability while trying to maintain those gains. Mm -hmm. So that when you show up, you are at a higher level of recovery than you might be through a normal normal training week, Mm -hmm. where I don't think the guys at the highest levels that I'm training with are ever fully recovered during normal training conditions. They're always a little overtrained, that's just normal for them. They don't, um, that's the lifestyle and, um, they wouldn't be as technically incredible if they had walked around with a heart, uh, heart rate monitor on for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's something that I think about a lot. Like when it comes to skill acquisition in a sport where you, are going to take damage or where just the training itself is destructive doesn't even have to be mma but any high level sport that breaks you down um crossfit breaks you down so there there are a lot of people in by in a biohacking who do crossfit and Mm -hmm. so that's that's one that as you talk people can can kind of put in the back of their head it it's good for you but those heavy weights and stuff they can they can be hard on your body Absolutely. Not like getting punched in the noggin, but they can be tough. Yeah. I think frequently about how skill acquisition comes from repetitions. However, and, and, and a lot of this conversation around recovery is going to essentially boil down to work capacity. But mm. um, rarely do technical pursuits um, progress without some really kind of like rote memorization uh, of physical skills or um, practice that's not too intense, right? Like uh, Mm -hmm. an example from CrossFit would be like Olympic lifting with just the bar or even better, like a broomstick. Um, 
you know, examples from jujitsu would be like uh, repetitive drilling where your partner's not really resisting at all. Um, or maybe even like with a grappling dummy or a Swiss ball. And then obviously in mixed martial arts, it's like the um, predictive sequences where like you and your sparring partner both know exactly what you're going to do. Like, you know, he's going to throw the jab and you're going to slip and counter. And then, you know, he's going to shoot or whatever. You know, you guys have set sequence so that you can just get the repetitions in without going to those higher levels of intensity. And this is a, an aspect of sport conditioning that I find is neglected in just about every sport because boring, not as much fun, and it takes a long time. Nobody bleeds. Yeah, nobody bleeds. It, and, and, it, and it's a longer time investment. However, your return on this investment, I so right is so much higher than your return on the investment. Like there are few highs that I have had in my life that even come close to rivaling when I've had a like a tough, like spark, like a couple of tough sparring rounds and I was challenged, but I did well and I was functioning often. I was firing all cylinders. It was exciting. It was thrilling. I was pulling off cool moves, but the return on investment of those sessions is they pales in comparison to the sort of like um, mundane, you know, the monotonous, um, the the drilling sessions where we're we're not at as high of an intensity, but we are uh, really just honing our skills, sharp, sharpening our sword, so to speak. And you see this five years ago. I moved to yeah. Sorry. You you, just, you see this in all sports. People want to play because playing is fun. And, and you see this in exercise. People want to go to the gym and stack as many plates on that barbell as they can. And nobody wants to take an, a broomstick or an empty bar and move that around. Uh, everybody wants to do handstands. Nobody wants to condition their wrists. I mean, you, you want to mm. do the, the sexy fun stuff, which I get. Um, yeah, what were you going to say? Five years ago? Five years ago, I, give or take, I moved to Stockton and I had been doing a lot of mixed martial arts and competing in jujitsu and thought I was in pretty good shape. I get out here and I show up at the gym and I start doing some training and I was used to like hour and 15 minute, hour and a half training sessions of a given martial arts workout or so say in jujitsu class we would come in and and warm up for 15 minutes and then for 20 or 30 minutes we would do a sequence you you just had the real name for it what's it called oh just drilling moves yeah just a predictive drill a sequence Mm -hmm. you work through movements and your partner allows you to do it and you practice whether it be an offense or a, a defensive or sometimes both sequence and you do that like each guy does it because does each piece three times and you switch and and then the the rolling would commence which they called sparring there and i since don't like to call jujitsu training sparring um but the the and within jujitsu when someone says rolling it means they're like sparring and grappling trying to strangle or or get them to tap um get an opponent to tap into from a submission hold something like that but you're trying pretty hard 
you're not hurting each other because you can tap and stop and, and give up, mm-hmm. but you're, you're both really trying hard. You're really trying to win. It's like one of the only martial arts where you can go that hard and nobody has to die. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you do that for 30 minutes, 20 minutes, and three rounds of that really hard. And then you'd be it and you'd feel like a million bucks and you'd be like, I've done all I could do today in my martial arts journey. <laughs> and I get out to Stockton and I wasn't sure when we were actually training and when we weren't, all I knew was within about an hour and a half, I was ready to go home. And the food that I had been eating was just not staying. I figured at this point it would have been digested after. And it turned out that we were doing the sequence drilling. We were just practicing moves for two hours, Mm -hmm. like every day, sometimes more. And then, and of course we would do rounds, we would roll and we would also like do real sparring and but you you didn't have access to any of that until you got through essentially like a couple hours an hour at least of just doing drills just drilling moves and i gotta tell you it's the hardest thing ever for my brain not the hardest thing ever but my brain that was not exciting i thought i was i don't know what i thought i was going to see or be doing because if I really thought about it, well, that's the way that I would memorize how to do all kinds of sick shit. You know, you would do it over and over until you'd memorized it, like the way I'd become a doctor and all that. I'd passed all those tests just over and over and over. And as it turns out, at the really high levels of this shit, guys are spending more time just doing drills than at the low levels guys are doing trying to beat up each other. And if you accept that and you accept, okay, I would like to try my hand at being an elite martial artist, then you just accept that that's what you're doing. And over five years, my paradigm has changed. And it doesn't mean that I dream of drilling for two hours. Two nights ago, we did two and a half of just drilling and then rounds. Mm -hmm but I accept it. And every week that I have done a lot of drilling, I'm thankful and I know that I did the work. And at this point, and it doesn't mean that I don't need to spar or need to do whatever to know where I'm at. But if I go through a week where I've, I could have had no like hard training and just done a ton of drilling and I would feel so grateful for making it through that week. Mm-hmm. because I've, I've learned that value and that effectiveness at getting to the actual goal, not just having so much fun in my workout session, mm-hmm. which is just to explain the differences between, you know, a, a high performance or an elite program or an approach on a very simplistic level. Ver- that it's not to say that people, everyone should do that. It's really great that there are a lot of jujitsu gyms, as an example, that are a place where guys can get off of work and just go have fun. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be treated like a job. Like it, most people shouldn't be doing, um, you know, what we do, it's like, it's guys' jobs and we, we get to go to work with them. Yeah. And but it, that's, not, that's not the thing for everybody. Yeah, and it may, it's uh, probably also a great form of active recovery. 
for these athletes because they're probably staying in their cardiovascular range during those two hours of drilling. Um, probably you weren't at first, and that's why you kept trying to lose your lunch because you were over your 85% heart rate. But now Not at all. That, that your body you understands it exactly. Right. Now that your body don't even that, sweat. You don't even sweat. Wow. I'm sure I would sweat. Not unless it's hot. Yeah. Yeah. Or if I'm in a in a gi, I'll probably sweat. But otherwise, yeah, it's just it's my body adapted to behaving that way. Mm-hmm. What happened to my body? Um, well, what I think of primarily when I think about people that have established okay, so let, let's take an imaginary athlete, right? And let and let's think of their training as a pyramid. Okay. Um, what I'm gonna put at the base of that pyramid is going to be like really um, boring or exciting if you have the right mindset, um, joint conditioning, okay? Uh, your heart rate is not, not even going to get into the um, 65%. You know, it's not going to get above 65% of your maximum heart rate. It's going to be very low level stuff. You, if you're a guy that's, or a gal that sweats a lot, you might sweat a tiny bit. Um and maybe that doesn't have to be the, the hugest base, but it's certainly going to be the first priority. And then I guess it's a little funky looking pyramid, but certainly the, the, the biggest base would be your aerobic capacity. And what I think of here is um, when people spend time in that 65 to 85% heart rate, what's happening is they are filling their heart with as much blood as it can mm-hmm. handle per beat. So if you think of your heart as a balloon and we're in the 65 to 85% heart rate range, that balloon is essentially getting stretched because that balloon is holding as much water as it can. So it's squeezing out all that, wa- uh, our balloon's being filled with water, by the way. Uh, it's a water balloon. So we're squeezing out all the water okay. and then it's fully getting stretched and then it's squeezing out all the water, right? Once yes. you get above that 85% heart rate range, it's uh, squeezing and expanding so fast that the, the balloon doesn't get to fill completely. And so what happens is we have two very different kinds of stimulus. The one where the balloon is getting completely filled with each beat, that is more of a stretching stimulus that is sort of uh, expanding the, the volume that your heart can hold in each beat which is awesome. We want a heart that can hold a lot of blood in each beat and pump a lot of blood in each beat because this is gonna lower your heart rate and it's gonna give you, uh, in my opinion, you're gonna get a greater work capacity for that investment. On the other end of the spectrum, once you get above that 85% heart rate, your heart is pumping faster. And I think of that as more like, thickening the walls of your heart and, and giving it more hypertrophy. And, and the, the, it's like the walls of the balloon are getting thicker. Well, there's a price to pay for that and that the volume of what the heart can hold is gonna be less. Um, th- this is my understanding of how these adaptations work. Um, I'd love it if you can fill in any blanks or if I'm, if I'm totally missing the mark, but if that sounds good to you, um, then let me know. Sounds good to me. So basically my cardiovascular system over time has adapted to doing that efficiently. And Mm -hmm. 
that was work for me, not because it was all that hard for the human body to adapt to, but just because I wasn't doing that before and most people aren't. Mm -hmm. Well, and you, and it's not like, it's not like this physical activity is just cycling, right? You're in a new environment with a bunch of um, super tough guys and it's not just what your body's doing. It's all the other stressors too, right? Like how much sleep you got is going to affect how, what heart rate range you're in, uh, how much mental duress you're under is going to affect how much adrenaline's in your system. All these things are going to have an effect, but you've adapted to this environment on many levels. And one of them is cardiovascularly, you're more efficient than you were before. Um, Goodness. Yeah. And so your work capacity has a lot. So let's say you have a client and they come to you and they say, I'm doing a cardio kickboxing class twice a week. I would like Mm -hmm. to get stronger by working with you twice a week. Mm -hmm. Would you have them do anything on those other three days? And if so, what would you have them do? Or would you say, okay. This is a really good question. Um, Recently in the last six to eight months, I have um, mandated for myself that I have three actual rest days a week. and by actual rest days, I might, you know, my, my heart rate's not likely to get above 65, 70% throughout the whole course of the day. I am uh, probably going to do some joint maintenance, but I'm not going to do any cardiovascular training on that. Can you do some, can you do stretching? Yeah. Joint maintenance, stretching, mobility work. You know, I'll do that stuff. So define, what do you throw in the bag of joint maintenance just for listeners? Uh, I've recently fallen in love with functional range. Then I'll, then I'll bring you back. Yeah, cool. I've recently fallen in love with functional range conditioning. I think that's just a beautiful modality for improving how what well. What the fuck does that mean? Functional range conditioning is, um, oh, geez, I think I might mess up his name. Uh, it's Dr. Oh, geez, like Andre Spino. Oh, man, that's too bad. I'll, I'll look him up at some point. Um Shout out Andre. Yes. Thank you, sir. You've done a great thing for all of our moving parts. Basically, it uh, a broad overview of what this system does is it will isolate one joint and move that joint through its full pain-free range of motion. And just that constant stimulus, if you're regular with your practice, is really beneficial because what I have found with my body is that if I run most of my joints through their available range of motion that's pain-free that range of motion improves and expands and my joints feel better and I don't feel so sore and tight um why why is that your joints have x number of receptor sites Mm -hmm. and those receptor sites can either be occupied by mechanoreceptors or nociceptors Mm-hmm. Mechanoreceptors are responsible for joint movement, 
the, the mechanisms by which the joint moves, or you can think of it as how the joint acts mechanically, mm-hmm. mechanoreceptors, whether you are uh, being stretched, twisted, being strong, being hot, being cold, like being warm, like I'm warmed up. Mm-hmm. No susceptors sense pain and noxious stimuli. Mm-hmm. So this is too hot. This is all of a sudden I'm being burned. My nociceptors kick in. Injury, inflammation, mm-hmm. damage causes proliferation of nociceptors. And as we talked about uh, in the episode where we talked a lot about insulin and fasting and carbohydrates, we talked about omega-6s. Yep. There's so nociceptors will encourage the proliferation of, of those uh, inflammatory derivatives to bind to the joint. And the, basically they compete for those sites. So when you force the body to do things that require mechanoreceptors, you block the nociceptive activity, which over time and consistency, you decrease the total amount of uh, pain sensing receptors that you have in that joint and improve its potential ability to work accurately and appropriately because you build up the mechanoreceptor population there. So it's more sensitive to that sort of information. Like say, as someone, as someone builds proprioception or balance or stability in a joint, say like you just practice standing on your foot every day, mm-hmm you will build up in your knee and your ankle, you build up a lot more mechanoreceptor development versus nociceptors. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a big part of what he's doing there by just promoting you to continue to isolate, like choose what joint you want to build up mechanoreceptors in and help block that noxious stimuli. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got that one. What else goes in the, the toolkit of, um, would you call it joint maintenance? Yeah, joint maintenance. So I, I would just like to add, if you burn yourself on a hot stove, this is why you start shaking your hand immediately because you're trying to prioritize those mechanoreceptors over the nociceptors. Funny bone, you, they say rub it, rub your funny bone. That's yeah. what you're doing. Yes, damn right. And so, uh, mechanoreceptors are responsible for proprioception. All right, I guess, are they both nociceptors and mechanoreceptors? Yeah. So, and then proprioception. Uh, so- sort of not really. Oh. No, no susception tells you to get the fuck out of there. It it will ignite primitive reflexes, like the hand being drawn back. Yeah, that's and that's so that reflex gets solidified in a child the first time they do touch something that's too hot, mm-hmm. and after that, because if you happen to watch your child's first time burning their hand, they just throw their hand right on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it isn't until they actually get burned that they pull off, and then that reflex is there. Mm-hmm. And then the body says, oh, we needed to turn that light on. And then anytime something hits, you go right off of it. Hmm, fascinating. All right, I'm going to try something. Yeah. Funny story. One time in high school, I was tripping on acid. And I started talking with my sister's boyfriend in our kitchen. And they had just cooked like some noodles or something. And I put my hand down on the stove. And I said, oh, geez, that's still hot because the the stove was just hot. It wasn't on anymore, it was still too hot. And I kept talking to this guy and I kept putting my hand, I pressed to put my hand on that stove 
like eight more times during the conversation. Never had any skin damage, never actually burned myself. It wasn't that hot, but it was like the the drugs in my system had <laughs> had short-circuited. Turned off that primitive reflex. Yeah, because I kept on going yes. back to it because I was distracted by what we were talking about. Um, but you know, well, it's that's not one of the methods by which that's one of the method methods by which people are you able to use psychedelic psychedelics to get past physical and mental blocks oh my goodness. like associated yeah. with trauma right mm -hmm. like a lot of times people will develop a reflexive block in their personality or their lifestyle or literally their behavior that is to keep certain trauma suppressed and will not let it open up mm -hmm. can't get rid of it and then a psychiatrist might lead them through some sort of psychedelic therapy. The psych psychologist or the therapist knows the, the right way to bring someone into a memory and extract it and so on and so forth. And it's, it's the, that same like family of mechanisms that is how psychedelics can be used for people to kind of access stuff that, that, that their primitive self has said, we're not, we're going to block, we're not doing that mental and physical yeah that, so we've got the yeah <laughs> i'm just gonna say god willing that kind of therapy becomes um proliferates and becomes it really seems to be on its way be a great thing for it would yeah. it would be a um, great thing for our society yes and so is i would is, like to go back to Joint maintenance. Joint maintenance. Yeah. So, so we had the, when it comes the first to joint one, maintenance, mm -hmm. which was, uh, say that again. Another thing to consider, so functional range conditioning, it, it's very, range your explanation, functional range conditioning, your explanation of helping the mechanoreceptors sort of dominate the territory over the nociceptors makes yes. a lot of sense to me. I'm not sure what the founders ideology is here but that's a, a great working theory for me um another so important thing, thing to consider and yep it is one thing with your joint maintenance another important to, uh, concept to consider is um the engineering of the structure of your joints so i i gotta give a uh two shout outs here one to shirley sarman i hope i'm saying her name correctly she is uh just probably the most well-developed mind in the world of physical therapy that I've ever come across. This woman's a genius. Um, she, I was referred to her by my, my personal trainer and my coach, Brian Reddy. Um, and he helped, he turned me on to her work and, and I've been reading one of her books and she talks at length about the, the path of instantaneous center of rotation, PICR. What she's talking about is when a joint moves, the center of, uh, so you have two bones that are connected, the center of this bone, uh, the center of one of the bones, as it moves, it, it creates an arc. And the closer the, the center mass of that bone can stay to the center of, a, of the arc, the more efficiently the joint is rotating. So let, let's say you had a, a wheel on a bicycle, right? And you see the, the center of 
that wheel stays always in about the same place. And so what you have here is a wheel that can turn thousands and thousands of times because the center of the wheel stays in the correct location the whole time and it's efficient, right? However, if you imagine that that wheel, maybe that, um, oh, come on, terms. Uh, so the, the piece of metal that goes through the wheel is maybe a little bit too small or maybe the hole it's going through is a little bit too big. And there was um, some extra vibration there so that the circles and rotations the wheel is making are not perfect. You're gonna get a lot more wear and tear on that wheel and that bicycle is not going to ride nearly as far, right? Now, our joints don't require us, which is one of our great evolutionary advantages. Our joints don't require us to have perfect centers of rotation all the time. In fact, it may be a good stimulus that some of our joint movements are not perfect. You know, that might be some good, you know, conditioning uh, here and there. Um, however, what happens if your joints repeatedly deviate from their we'll call it their perfect motion, is you get uh, a susceptibility to movement in a direction. And what Shirley Sarman has found is that if you have a susceptibility to movement in a certain direction, just due to the structural nature of the joint, due to improper repetitive movements, that is going to be a source of injury or pain over time. So what I found really important to my own joint mobility or, or movement practice is to really try and reinforce the, what I think of as proper movement throughout my whole day, but also with some active practice every single day. What this looks like is um, noticing my body when it's not in good alignment and making sure that, you know, functional range conditioning checks a lot of these boxes for me. Uh, noticing when I have pain and trying to determine why am I having that pain there? Am, am I using one of my joints in a way that is causing it to become susceptible to a certain amount of movement? Maybe I should move a different joint instead. Um, this practice, it, it, it's a toss up for me whether this is the base of the pyramid or the second layer of the base of the pyramid, this and your aerobic capacity, but when we think of active recovery and the ability to perform at a high level repeatedly, we must think about uh, our work capacity from a cardiovascular sense and uh, our integrity of movement and our, our joint integrity while we're moving. How does that sit with you? Does all, did all, everything I just said make a lot of sense? I apologize, Dr. Sarman, if I butchered your theory. Good. I think you explained her theory correct correctly. I'm not familiar with her theory, but what you described is what neurologists call segmental hypokinetic dysfunction. Yes. Oh, that's such a yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. You, you got to have your segment. So to, yeah. So to break that down, the segment means. If you have a joint, there are two, two, two bones involved. The, the two bones meet at a joint. Mm -hmm. And one of those bones is going to be improperly functioning to a greater degree than the other in the areas 
which the nutation, which is a word for joint motion, um, it's good to speak in what's called, when we're describing this stuff, when in order for a bunch of disciplines to talk together, it's good to, to use mathematical terms and sometimes mm -hmm. call them orthogonal because everybody has their own made up words for a bunch of shit. And so it allows you to talk about basically in engineering terms, how yeah. two things are moving in space. So as one segment, which is a bone, has joint motion, which is nutation, one of the two segments, even though, so you've got a joint and let's say right here, the joint isn't working correctly, that that dysfunction is most caused by either this segment or this segment. Mm -hmm. Now, how could that be? Or that sounds really arbitrary. What does that mean? Well, let's say that this joint was, here's your, your hip or your ilium. Mm -hmm. And here's your femur. Okay. And your femur's going in that socket joint. And your femur is connected with your knee and underneath of your knee, it's connected with your ankle. And let's say that you broke your ankle eight times. So mm -hmm. you no longer walk correctly. So every time you take a step, it's causing the angle with which the femur fits into that socket to be a little bit off for how that person grew up, right? Because the bones grew as you're growing and your skeleton kind of fills in and expands. So in that case, this would be the segment that would have the majority of the hypo, which is too little kinetic movement dysfunction. Because it's closer to the um, ankle? Because it's the source of the improper angle or articulation of the joint complex which is made up of multiple segments, usually two. Mm -hmm. And from a practical standpoint or from a clinical standpoint, when people have pathology due to that, and that's a lot of what chiropractors deal with, even though they may or may not realize it and may or may not treat it appropriately, but you have to restore, you want to restore function in a way that's lasting, right? Mm -hmm. As, as you pointed out, you can sit there and take a joint through all of the ranges, ranges of motion. That doesn't mean when you go to throw a ball that your arm will work properly. Mm -hmm. And injuries take place in a space of abundant coupled motion. Mm -hmm. So not only are, are these joints moving here, but there are other joints moving elsewhere and you're, and you're experiencing coupled motion with the ground as you're running. Mm -hmm. And there are all these other aspects that cause what you describe, she describes as an area or an articulation, which is held together by tendons and ligaments, where certain ones have become lax over time. Mm -hmm. And certain ones where there's that loss of motion as nutation occurs, actually get tight. Their Golgi tendon organs get calibrated that way. And that is the root of arthritis in those areas. So chronic hyperfunction in one aspect of the joint coupled with a root of hypokinetic dysfunction mm -hmm. 
is where arthritis shows up. And a lot of people get like confused by that because they're like, well, this is a, my joints too loose here. So why would arthritis show up? But arthritis shows up to stabilize a destabilized joint complex. Wow. And because we understand how all, how all joints move, we can evaluate and that function can also be impaired by neuro neurological issues that can happen from injury or, or organically. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, that's a, a very real thing. And understanding that you want to avoid fixation without creating hypermobility mm -hmm. is a, a big step in terms of maintaining full range of motion as you get older, because we all get arthritis somewhere as we get older. The reason I say without creating hypermobility is a lot of times people will focus on an area that doesn't feel well or doesn't seem to be working well and they will stretch it. Mm -hmm. And if they are stretching the whole joint and not just the hypokinetic aspects, hypo is too little, hyper is too much, mm -hmm. then they will continue to stretch tendons and ligaments and, and train the Golgi tendon organs to basically maintain that joint in a very dysfunctional way. Like it'll, it'll keep parts of it too loose mm -hmm. when what you're feeling or experiencing is a compensation for there being a fixation, but um, might not get fixed by stretching that. And a lot of times dysfunction in a joint comes from a different joint that's right next to it. So if my ankle's not so you can help end up with knee pain. You'll have low back problems. Yeah. Right. You'll start yep. to have joint fixation in your lower back. And if up here doesn't move, if you just sit here all day craning your neck and you don't do anything to mobilize your upper thoracic region, you'll have all kinds of dysfunction in your upper cervical spine. And then you'll have headaches. And then you might wow. have balance issues. And but it was coming from there which could have actually started with that broken ankle and mm -hmm. just worked its way up the chain if nothing never gets fixed. Yeah. One of the things that I've been, I, I guess I want to touch on just for like, just for people to have some practical takeaways uh, from this joint maintenance aspect of the conversation. Um, uh, as far as functional range conditioning goes, one of the things that I found that they really emphasize is there's a lot of movement of uh, scapula independently of other joints. So they'll isolate the scapula movement. They'll isolate the thoracic spine movement. And they'll isolate the hip movement. And then, so that's wonderful to be able to like, and, and as a personal trainer, I've noticed that a lot of people will struggle. And I do mean struggle to move these parts of their bodies at all consciously at first so if i have somebody try to move just their shoulder blade just try to move the thoracic spine if they have not had a movement practice they've been moving improperly boy are they going to compensate at first the whole thing starts moving right right well yeah. i think that is truly uh you know if you get nothing else from functional range conditioning just the ability to articulate those segments of your body is really valuable and then to draw one last thing oh you got a question i can tell yeah i got one quick question i know that um i know that the pandemic has changed 
how we operate a little bit. And I know that you weren't always real big on being remote with your clients, mm -hmm. but is this the kind of thing where if somebody was just really struggling with understanding it, like they could get on video with you and you could help them take a look at their joint movement? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. This is a big, a huge part of my business now. If somebody needs help with that, contact Kyle cool. and he will help you. Absolutely. Um, draw on one last thing from Dr. Sarman. It, it seems to me that her, at least at, at this point in my sort of immersion in her work, it seems to me that her answer to this has to do with muscle recruitment sequences. And just to make that even easier, um, if you are to bend over to lower the elevation of your torso to grab something, which muscles fire first to enact that movement is important. So if you, you know, ideally you stabilize first, your stabilizers fire before your prime movers. So if I bend over to pick something up, ideally my, my spine will brace itself first and then my hips will articulate into flexion to lower the elevation of my torso. So that would be like an optimal movement pattern that occurs every day. And you know, in the fitness world, we think of that as a hip hinge. However, if my entire life I have bent over by not stabilizing my lumbar spine and just flexing my lumbar spine and then flexing at the hips later, that muscle firing sequence is going to predispose me to, to pain and discomfort. So as a part of my daily mobility practice, I'm also just getting some repetitions in on fundamental human movement patterns that ideally, if I'm having a good day and I'm doing it properly, will fire my muscles in the appropriate sequence because I can have the most um, articulating joints in the world, but if I'm not stabilizing the correct parts of my, you know, the correct segments and moving the correct segments when I go to throw that ball, none of that stuff is gonna translate, right? So we, we want our mobility to be functional. And the best way to do that is to be able to articulate uh, joints independently and then integrate them into the movement patterns that we're likely to use, that, that all humans use daily. So you're saying that some good active recovery for your general working professional who is trying to stay on top of their fitness so they can look good, but also for longevity would be not necessarily doing any, any cardio, but maybe, but definitely doing some maintenance where you look specifically at certain joints or a body part. Like you look specifically at your arm, especially one that's giving you some trouble and you do a little bit of targeted work that includes you moving it includes you evaluating and maybe doing some stretching and maybe sweating just a little bit, but probably not, mm -hmm. but brings, brings the, uh, your motor movement or the way you move, uh, up, up to speed a little bit to augment what you're going to be doing with your normal training schedule. Like you seem to be going to the most efficient thing for a person to start with active recovery is rehabilitative. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and uh, okay. prehabilitative, right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, so to avoid injuries, especially if you're really enjoying the activity, if you're really enjoying CrossFit, you will get injured and becoming aware of how each individual joint works. Mm-hmm. And I know that that can sound pretty detailed and it can be, mm-hmm. doesn't need to be for most people, but getting a little more in-depth understanding of how your your body is working and where maybe the major deficits are can can avoid some injuries that were not necessary in whatever you were doing. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be a huge time investment. You're really going to get a huge ROI here because um, some folks have done an incredible job of taking this stuff and just making it really bite-sized. Like uh, my mobility daily are a couple of functional range conditioning specialists who have broken it down and it's like five or 10 minutes a day of this active joint recovery. And I've seen people get a lot of good results from that. That's like, uh, that's a good dose, right? As a minimum, as some, you know, somebody's really busy, and they got a lot going on, that's a good place to start. Five or 10 minutes a day, at least make sure it's all moving. It's always helpful to have a coach, right? Um, it's a good place to start. You know, looking at the research that, uh, you know, post-exercise stretching may not necessarily improve performance, but absolutely improves uh, subjective measures of discomfort and soreness from exercise. So, you know, a lot of people, they like to hit the gym hard, hop in the shower and go, and then just like get sedentary right afterward. But if you have a movement practice to help you kind of come out of that fight or flight state and, and, and take care of your joints and then slowly ease your way out of uh, the higher intensities, I think your body will really appreciate it for sure. A hundred percent. And especially with all of the commuter cities included in that ritual, a lot of folks have is they come flying out of the shower, they're still sweating, and then they sit in the car for 45 minutes. Yeah. And they actually you know, I, people tell me that that actually is a therapeutic activity for them quite often because they get to put on a podcast and just, they, they, they feel good from having had the workout and they just get half an hour to themselves before they get back to their family. They can just think about whatever they want, but their hamstrings and their psoas and their neck is never got realigned Mm -hmm. from all the training they just did. And if they would have hung out and done a few minutes of stretching, you're right, that that would be helpful, maybe even more helpful than just waiting till your off day, like I said. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned yoga because that was another thing that I found when I was looking at the research. And my the the research was actually, I was looking in a slightly different direction here because I was looking at um, how do people lower their resting heart rate? Because I, as we were talking about a little bit earlier about the heart and how many beats per minute, I tend to associate lower resting heart rate with higher levels of fitness and uh, greater work capacity. Now, this may not actually be the case if your athletic endeavor of choice is uh, powerlifting or sprinting, right? Um, uh, 
you may actually have a higher resting heart rate in those endeavors because they prioritize short bursts of high intensity, right? So it, I don't know if it's gonna, I actually don't think that it'll benefit you from a longevity perspective to have those, those thicker walls in your heart and the higher heart rate, but you may not need, uh, I mean, nobody's gonna tell an Olympic sprinter that they're out of shape just because they can, you know, they've never run more than three miles, right? Um, right, and, they and, might a, and a power lifter practically has to look out of shape to be considered a good power lifter. You know, because mass moves a lot of mass, a lot right? of those guys carry a lot of mass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which that's the obviously way to not good for longevity, but but you got to compete. What are you What are you going to do? Yeah, not compete. So what I what I found when I was looking at the research is that um, actually participating in yoga uh, has been shown to lower your resting heart rate and. I was thinking that, yeah, when, when I think about um, best forms of active recovery, and, and I'm always thinking about return on investment because we are, you know, our, our time and energy is finite. We want to be able to get the most out of every little modicum of movement that we can get. It seems that time is of the essence. Time is so important. It seems that if you have a yoga practice that is going to check a lot of these joint maintenance boxes, and you're able to maintain that for, I would imagine you should probably maintain it for 30 to 60 minutes if you want to get some resting heart rate benefits and see an improvement in your work capacity. But I think it is also a really valuable form of active recovery. Um, it seems more like trendy from what I've seen in the fitness world to have yoga classes be you tend to see more of a, a vinyasa flow these days. And that just means that you're, you're tying the breath to your movement. And personally, and I think a lot of people will get this, will have this experience. When you're doing a vinyasa style of yoga, it's a little bit faster and your heart rate definitely. I've, I've gotten crushing workouts from those, especially yeah. like hour long. Yeah. Yeah, you're sweating a ton. You're fully engaged because you have to be because you're being challenged. Um, those sessions, I I wonder if you are above the 85% of your maximum heart rate threshold point when you're doing those workouts. I bet you go back and forth. Uh, I'm sure if you're holding like a really intense pose and you got to be there for 45 seconds, I bet you creep up above, but it's probably right around that 85% where you're you're going above and then you're going below. Um, and I imagine that's the mechanism by which yoga has been shown to lower your resting heart rate. However, mm, okay. Yeah. I think that it's just given your, heart I see what you're saying. Body. So you may, you may need to do, you may need to do like a vinyasa type, like you, you might not be able to just do a yoga stretch for 20 minutes and get that benefit. You may need to be doing some sort of coupled breathing vinyasa type yeah it, it's to, probably gonna have to, to have a bit of, it's gonna have to have a bit of a pace to it Th that being said well you um, know yoga's yeah i was just gonna say that yin yoga um yoga that is more um, maybe passive stretching uh far lower intensity much longer holds in the poses you know where you might be in a certain pose for like three to five minutes 
um, that, and I haven't been able to look at the research as far as like what kind of yoga they were using, but that kind of yoga where it is, uh, you know, it's still gonna help you with your joint maintenance. And um, meditation has also been shown to help people lower their resting heart rate. So if it is shown that yin yoga also lowers your resting heart rate, I would imagine that the mechanism is more along the lines of um, helping you be in more of a parasympathetic dominant state. So just helping your body be in that rest and relax mode more readily and just spending. That's one of the most beautiful things about yoga. When you've never, when I had never done yoga before and I started learning, it taught me how to relax in a stressful situation. Like I'm holding this warrior pose and my thigh feels like it's gonna explode and my heart is pounding and I'm gasping for air. But as I practice, I learn how to relax into the effort. And that may that that could easily be another mechanism by which yoga helps people lower their resting heart rate because it teaches them to exert effort while also staying relaxed. To me, it's a high stakes mindfulness meditation. I mean, not as high stakes as a knife fight, but it's up there. Mm -hmm. And for people before they can give into the pose, like myself, I found great benefit from just realizing, okay, I'm here and my knee is shaking. Mm -hmm. I'm probably not going to make it as long as the, the teacher wants me to hold this. But I remember about 15 years ago being in my first yoga class and I was really big into weightlifting and just having my mind blown that I was so weak in certain positions. And I was well into my training to be harder to kill. And this, this little flexible girl was gonna take my life if I didn't, if I didn't get a little better at that. Mm -hmm. And now my, a part of what I do is I try to, my, my girlfriend's a yoga teacher. So are you, by the way. And I try to do 15 to 30 minutes a day, training or not training, for all of the reasons we've talked about. And the shorter duration is just because with the balance of my life, that's what I can give time to in a healthy way. So that's what I do, but I try and do it over and over. And it does add up and it, it does help. It, we, we touched on these movement, not just yoga, but these practices of paying attention to some, some paying attention to the health of the joints that are doing the work in these workouts that we enjoy mm -hmm. can have mental benefit, can have cardiovascular benefit, can stave off arthritis, can prevent injuries before they happen, can give you less pain, less nociception, even to noxious stimuli, can improve balance, can improve range of motion, and can improve actual performance if it's improving a motor chain. Mm -hmm. So just from doing like non-intensive active recovery, joint maintenance, as you've described it, you can get all those benefits. 
in a few minutes a day mm -hmm. and be more prepared for your next training session session than if you just literally rested. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the dose response here is really critical. I think people need to hear that you can do it in 10 or 15 or 30 minutes a day. It, it doesn't have to be hour long sessions. It can be if you enjoy that. Sometimes that feels great, but you can, you can maintain your joints in 10 minutes a day. When I was a chiropractor, I changed a lot of people's days in a half a second adjustment. Mm. Just, just altering temporarily how a joint was behaving. Yeah. And of course it came back because I didn't change those motor patterns. The, the person has to do that for themselves. Right. Most of my clients weren't interested in doing that. The ones that were changed their lives and we could do a lot of other things too. Mm -hmm. But you working on yourself for 10 minutes a day in a targeted way, manually, you know, like with your muscles, your body, not just, not just thinking, it's worth it. It is absolutely worth it. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you want to be good at working out, I don't think you can do that without embracing some sort of active recovery. Mm -hmm. You might get good compared to a bunch of, of people starting out, but you're going to have a hard time progressing to, to the level where people are really proficient at their craft. Mm -hmm. To the, to the level at which people are so good, they're not even trying against the lower level people. And they've got to go run for hours just to get the work in. Yeah. I'm half kidding, half not. No, it's, I mean, hey, there's something to that for sure. Um, have you ever heard that some of the first doctors in Western society, I want to say like the original Greek doctors were also required to be experts in gymnastics. Have you ever heard that before? Yes. I, I think have. that's just a beautiful, um, it's just such a, a beautiful philosophy because if you look at, and I have not been to every gymnastics school in the country, but I bet if you go to any gymnastics school, on this planet, you're gonna find people investing in joint conditioning and joint maintenance as the first thing they do. That is literally the foundation. Yeah, and, and, and I am willing to bet that any Olympian that we've ever seen in the gymnastics sport has just devoted so much of their life to this that we're talking about. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that this joint maintenance thing that we're we're talking about, it can literally make you superhuman. Like those gymnastics athletes are capable of things that virtually any human or even any other high-level athlete in any other sport is not going to be able to come close to being able to do. And it sits on a foundation of joint maintenance and joint yes. conditioning. Yes. And I just think that's a yes. beautiful thing. Like it's, it, we tend to think of it as boring because it's not, your heart rate's not pounding and you're not, um, you know, dominating somebody or setting some kind of record, but my God, man, this is where the real, the real power lies is in um, 
having healthy alignments and, and having functional tissues and, and then reinforcing those alignments and that healthiness with a, a continuous practice. It's kind of like, unless you're a person who is going to be a professional athlete and solidify your security for the rest of your life in a few short years, managing recovery and injury is how you win the war. It's not about having a bunch of extreme battles in the gym. Mm -hmm. It's about everything you do outside of the gym so that you, you keep going and you keep maintaining. Mm -hmm. And you and I aren't that old, but in the, in terms of high level sports, we're getting ancient and we're still out there. And I know that we both plan to be physically fit and competitive into our 60s. And there's no way that is happening without me taking care of my body and also accepting what's going to happen to it. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we hope to do with this podcast is help people have realistic expectations of what the human body requires and can do so that they can make themselves the best that they can be for whatever their endeavor, whatever their mission is. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. Every, everybody's got a fight and, and everybody's in some kind of battle. And if, yeah, if I can help, if exploring these ideas with you can, can help anybody be a little bit harder to kill or help anybody just, you know, get a little extra power in their lives, I would be really grateful for that. Well, that I don't think you have to worry about that. So go ahead and be grateful because you definitely help a lot of people. You mentioned the quick last thing. You mentioned the Greeks and the original physicians. A lot gets lost in history, man. Mm. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, did you know that a lot of the alcohol that they were drinking back then was just a carrier for different herbaceous drinks and psychedelic brews? Um, I, I did listen to a really fascinating podcast about that recently. I can't remember anybody's name on it. I mean, it was a Joe Rogan podcast, but, um, but yeah. That's pretty fascinating. Well, it's, it's a thing. And it's not about the fact that they were like drinking mold and seeing stars, but it's about the fact that they, the, the original understanding of health and medicine was informed by nature and incorporated much of what we've left behind about health. There were people embraced chemicals, they embraced the idea of medicine, but they also placed extreme importance on what you did with your body and how you thought mm -hmm. about what you were doing. And a return to that in, within anyone's life, because we can't control what a whole society does, but a return to 
that holistic point of view that is inclusionary, not rejection, not I'm holistic, I don't believe in medicine, or I'm holistic, I'm anti-surgery. No offense, whoever thinks that, but you're wrong. <laughs> I'll take that part out. Not, not that, you know, I'm holistic, I'm, I'm anti-surgery or I'm holistic, drugs are bad. No, it's it's all part of it. We we have many mutual friends who have been saved by surgery. I've mm -hmm. been saved multiple times by medical intervention. We can bring it all together in a synergistic way where we think in a healthy way about what we're doing. We move in a way that supports our health. Mm -hmm. And then when we have problems arise, we take care of those with the medicinal tools that we have as well. Yeah. But it, it can all be one, one unit. It doesn't have to be, let's hide from health until something bad happens and then try to recover it after we end up at the doctor. Mm -hmm. um, and for people who have had medical issues, you know, you planting that seed of 10 minutes a day, not that big a deal, you can do it. They're probably hearing that, but for others, we're planting a seed, but you might not be able to hear that right now because you feel so great mm. doing whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. But just let the seed be planted that if you are ignoring part of the mind-body-spirit equation, the nutrition-movement-thought equation, you're setting yourself up for having to go learn that or if we're experiencing some sort of injury or hiccup that was as a result of not having built that, that base of, of complete stability. Mm -hmm. That's beautifully said. You know, these are such polarizing times. Everybody wants to get on one side of an issue and, and just camp out there and dig in hard but that's not how it is that's not how life works like we need we need western medicine we need eastern medicine we need medicines we haven't even heard of we need medicines that we've forgotten you know we need all these interventions and yeah we, we shouldn't be camping out in our ideologies we should be trying to grow and learn together and um yeah i'm glad that you said that hopefully you and i can be Hopefully you and I can be a good example of that for people, especially in the health and wellness and fitness injury, uh, industry. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, brother. Let's do it. <laughs>